Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to an amazing Tuesday session. Um, I'm wearing my bright orange shirt today in uh, celebration of the fall. I told a friend here that you have to be in the right mood to wear a really bright orange. You just have to own it. And I'm really hoping today that I can do it because what I want to share today is a little bit last minute, but it's it deserves an orange shirt. So. Um, <laughs> Sometimes, um, with the kinds of communications that we get here at Asuli, you really need a bit of humor, patience, and heart. And so I'm going to pre pre present three examples of where you need each of those. So this is the first one that I felt required a little bit of, of humor. Um, you know, a lot of times when people write to the sheikh, um, they they are you know send a really lovely message that's really properly per, you know respectful you know they say salamu alaykum sheikh you know I pray you're well I know you're really busy and I'm sorry to trouble you um, you know they usually say something nice and they say you know I have a question for you and if you can get to it I really appreciate it and you know it's just a very um, decent message as, as you would expect so here's one that we got um, this morning dear sheikh kindly answer me to your question. How much of the law changes based on circumstances? That's it. So, you know, there's part of me that just wants to, um, you know, get on and, and pretend to be sheikh. So I figured the best way is just to answer it here, and that's just to say, you know, how much of the law changes based on circumstances? A lot. The second, um, the second example that requires patience, um, I'm just going to put on my scarf if you don't mind. Humor, yes, humor here too. Assalamu alaikum, sister. While Dr. Abul Fadl is a knowledgeable scholar, many Muslims are not taking grace seriously because they believe that her knowledge is superficial since she does not wear, mod she's not modest in her personal attire. Now, I'm sure it's the orange, not the scarf. <laughs> For many Muslims, this is important. Perhaps if you wear a scarf and have loose clothing, you may entice more people to watch your channel. Perception matters when you are trying to attract followers. I believe this is a reason why your channel has such a low number of subscribers and followers. One cannot be rigid and inflexible because of their belief that modest attire does not matter. Something to ponder about if you want your institute to grow and gain more followers and donations. Tradition and perception matters. Uh, she's not gonna know the answer to my question or to her question. Um, we, we are not really necessarily looking for followers. We're looking for critical thinkers and people who are not afraid to challenge the status quo use their God-given brain and intellect, and be able to listen to a woman whether she's wearing a scarf or not a scarf. So I've talked about this in, in other things, and I'm sorry to be sort of, you know, um, maybe disrespectful in my response, but you know, what we do here really does require some exertion of intellect, and it's not uh, for everyone, and if I offend you because I don't wear a scarf, then maybe this channel is really not for you. So um, I hope that's not the case because I think what we do here is extremely important. I think that people need to be reconnected to the Quran and in order to do that, it requires hard work, it requires patience, 
It requires looking beyond the superficial and delving deep into what really matters. And so I hope I invite you to, to join me in doing that, whether I wear a scarf or not. So anyway, um, but I have, I think I shared a link. This was a comment on YouTube. So I shared a link there um, for you know a previous um, excerpt that we posted that addressed this very issue. Because I do get this question a lot. Like, why is she immodest? Why is she not wearing a scarf? All of this kind of thing. And it's a complicated issue. The Sheikh has talked about it. And I invite you to um, not just think of it superficially, but actually to delve into um, the, the evidence behind it and, and do some thinking and recognize it's between a woman and her God. So that's all I have to say about that. Um, lastly, um, okay, so we did humor, humor and patience, and heart. So the last one is. Um, this is the one, uh, I got a really, really beautiful message um, from someone um, and you know, I, I struggled with whether or not I should talk about this here. And I think because um, I'm fortunate that I'm not a scholar, I have some leeway to just share an opinion. And this is um, from convert to someone who is considering conversion. So he wrote me a really nice message. First asking if, um, if this was a safe space to ask a question. This was a question that came through our website. And so I wrote him back and I said, yes, it absolutely is a safe space. One of the things that we um, are very clear about in our values, which we have posted on the website, is that you know, um, there is no embarrassment in religion and there is nothing more important than being able to question every aspect about your faith um, because this is the most important thing that you, you know, should um, hold dear to your heart. And if something doesn't sit right with you, you have every single right to ask a question and you should ask a question of someone who's knowledgeable, someone who's a scholar, um, who can answer that appropriately. And I'm, I'm proud of the fact that here in this space, you know, we've touched upon a lot of very controversial topics um, and we don't do it you know, superficially or you know, without um, a lot of um, you know, thought and, and, and background, or, you know, evidence and tradition. So, um, but okay, so um, I wrote him back. He said, thank you for your kind message. Oh, that's me. Um, he said, I'm especially, um, he said, I'm, I'm very familiar with the Usuli content. I pr particularly love your uh, videos on converts and your own experiences, which I found very moving and have turn, uh, turned to in times of doubt in my beliefs. I already spend a lot of time watching your channel, and I'm using the halakas for further guidance after I read each surah of the Quran. Let me take this time to thank you and the doctor for your incredible efforts in illust illustrating the profundity of the Quranic message, even as far away from people such as myself as you are. Um, I believe I am on a path to one day accepting Islam in my heart, but as a person of conscience and having led, to the best of my ability, a morally conscious life up until now, there are things that I must reconcile with Islamic theology and teachings if I am to accept the faith. I hope this is not inappropriate to ask. As a person of faith and one who recognizes the beauty of the Islamic message as touching my soul on a primordial and natural level, how can I reconcile what the majority of Muslim thought espouses on the permissibility of homosexual relationships. As I said, I have lived until now a moral person and I cannot, understanding natural phenomena as they are, comprehend how such relationships could be sinful. I have queer friends I love very much and it hurts me to think they would attribute judgment on my part onto them because of a teaching within the faith I believed in. I don't expect a comprehensive answer, nor do I expect anyone to alter their beliefs just to quell the angst of a curious, if not simply naive person as I may be. But in any case, from everything you've said online, I've always felt as though I would have asked such questions in person to you all if I were not so far away. I suppose I just want to know if this is a normal question of conscience 
from someone wanting to come into the faith. Um, anytime you have to answer this is really appreciated. So, um, you know, I'm not a scholar, obviously, I've said many times, and I cannot answer that question um, from a theological perspective, although the Sheikh has touched upon this issue um, in a number of excerpts and a number of videos. Um, and so I would definitely recommend that um, you search those up and you, you look at that, um, look at those responses, which I think are really beautiful. Um, it's obviously a you know, very controversial topic and a, and a very um, divisive topic. Um, and I think really what I just wanted to say is to share my opinion from the heart. Um, because, you know, obviously, um, you know, I have recently um, come to know, you know, more and more people um, who um, identify quite shamefully as homosexual. It's not something that they would necessarily say because they come from Muslim families or, you know, they, they understand that this is something you just don't admit out in, in the open. And I think that some of these people are the most pure and beautiful souls I have ever met and would put, you know, any Muslim to shame when I look at, you know, their, their beauty, their passion, their kindness, generosity, um, you know, everything beautiful about what, you know, God has created in a person. And I feel honored to, to call some of these people my very dear friends. Um, and so for me, everything that I know and have learned in these halakas um, and everything that I've always believed in about my God is that this is a God of love and mercy and kindness and generosity and fairness and beauty. And, you know, I mean, it just, you know, for all of the different um, qualities that I imagine in a beautiful person, I could not imagine that I could just turn to someone and say you're homosexual and therefore you're evil and you know you're horrible and you can doom yourself to hell and that this is not something that is you know allowed in our religion and so therefore you should be doomed to a life of misery you know God created you that way and and you know who knows why and you should just suffer the rest of your life that just is not consistent with what I know to be my God I'm not a theologian, I don't know the answer, I don't know why, you know, I can't answer anything, but I just know from my own heart that that's just not the God that I believe in. Um, I understand this is a complicated issue left for people who can handle these kinds of issues, but for every, you know, queer person that I know, I don't know if even that's the right term, but every person that I know, it's not my business what their sexuality is, my business is what kind of a person that person is. Is that person moral? Is that person kind, beautiful? What, am I proud to call them my friend? And if I am, I will love them with my whole heart and do everything that I can to support and love that person, so whether they're, they're Muslim or not. So, um, and I, I would not allow, you know, and, and this is like, again, you know, we know from this path that we're taking here that this is a lonely path. Um, there are not a lot of people that really want to invest the time in, in grappling with difficult issues um, or studying. Um, and so it's easy to judge and it's easy to be mean and it's easy um, to be dismissive. Um, and I, I think that's wrong. So um, this path um, you know, is, I think that the only, the only way to live your life is ethically and beautifully and morally and with love and with trust that God is ultimately just um, and just to do your best. And again, that's just my own personal opinion. One convert to 
someone who I hope will convert, and I hope that um, you know, the way that other Muslims react to this issue will not prevent you from delving into the most beautiful religion that exists and um, the most beautiful path to peace and love and beauty that, that I know. And the more we delve into these um, halakhas and these chapters, it just underscores that and just you know, um, makes my, convic my conviction that much more strong. So I don't know if that helps, but I just wanted to share that and, you know, and wear it in, or say it while I'm wearing my orange shirt because with the orange shirt comes a little bit more bravery than normal. So <laughs> um, anyway, and um, for whatever that's worth, I hope that um, you'll always think of this faith as the most elevated path to love and, and beauty. Um, and, you know, there's no room for anything but that. Um, in, on this road. So anyway, inshallah, or whatever that's worth. And I'm so excited to continue um, with another amazing surah, number 63, right? 82. Oh, no, I mean, that's the surah number. This is our 63rd surah, right? I know, Joe, Joe knows the, the number of every surah, the chapter number of every surah. But this is our 63rd that we've covered in Project Illumin. And yes, surah 83, surah uh, 82. 82, excuse me, okay. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <laughs> اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي. So inshallah today we do surah al-infitar and it's a short surah. Um, a short surah uh, 19 verses 19 ayahs, uh, so um, inshallah it will be smooth sailing. Surat uh, al-Futar, there are a, a number of reports that say that Surat al-Futar was revealed after a Nazi'at. If so, uh, Surat al-Infutar would be, um, and in fact, after al-Nazi'at, before al-Inshikaq. Um, so if so, then Surat al-Infutar would be among the last surahs revealed in Mecca. This would mean that it would be, be a surah revealed shortly before Surah Al-Rum, um, which we've talked about already, and Surah Al-Mutafifin, which we have not talked about. Um, but then it would place it after uh, most of the surah that we've talked about. Um, so it would place it uh, of course, after uh, um, later, uh, um, after Al-Maraj, 
um, and it would place it after Surat al-Maharaj, it would place it after Uttur and al-Sajda and al-Mulk and so on. Although it, it, we have these reports that say that it was revealed after al-Nazi'at and before al-Inshiqaq, for a variety of reasons, including reports uh, of a general nature, me, general nature meaning that the, I mean, reports that say that Surat al-Inshiqaq was uh, a mid-Meccan revelation or an early Meccan revelation without specifying the order of revelation. So reports that just say it's mid-Meccan or early Meccan without specifying more than that. Um, I might be wrong. I mean, it is quite possible that I'm entirely wrong about this, but my feeling is that it is not a late Meccan revelation. Um, I have um, technical reasons for being a bit skeptical about the reports that say it was revealed after Naziat and before Al-Inshiqaq. Um, and part of, part of the, the the, the ambiguity about the, uh, the time of revelation is that most of the reports, contextual reports about Surat al-Inshiqaq, uh, Surat al-Futar, uh, actually are contextual revelations that occur long after the revelations. So most of the contextual revelations, uh, in other words, reports that give us some context to this revelation, um, seem to occur in Medina, so well after the surah was revealed. And that, of course, then adds to the sense of ambiguity as to when precisely it was revealed. But with Surat al-Futar, maybe it doesn't really make a difference because Surat al-Futar's message is fairly direct and fairly straightforward. Um, and because, but because it is so fundamental um, and especially that that Quranic theme as the theme of what can possibly make a human being um, misunderstand the relationship with their Lord, misunderstand the nature of this relationship, and which is the the al-ghurur uh, billah or uh, that taking God for granted. Uh, it's so fundamental and so basic that it's difficult to imagine that it is a late Meccan revelation.
الله اعلم الله اعلم but surah al-fatir the best way to proceed pedagogically i think uh, with this surah is to talk about the traditional uh, meaning the the literal meaning because it's fairly straightforward and then some of the sufiesque orientations towards surah al-fatir and then my own um, take on Surat al-Infatar. So we just do it in the three layers. Um, okay, so some of the reports that we have surrounding Surat al-Infatar is in, in a lot of the reports center around uh, the the ayah number uh, number six. Yeah, which is a, a rhetorical question, a question that is designed to invite people to reflect and. The, the question, what Allah asks human beings, what could possibly have made you as human beings um, take God for granted to this extent? And so we get a, a number of reports about this. So some of the reports say that the Prophet ﷺ himself uh, commented that the reason human beings take God for granted and take their relationship with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala for granted is because of jahl, because of ignorance. Um, other reports say that Hassan al-Basri um, comments again in the in the same that it, the the reason is uh, your own demons or the the, the inner demons and in human beings um, there is a report attributed to uh, uh, or Umar ibn al-Khattab that he responds that, or he comments on this that it is human ignorance and uh, honk or idiocy that make them take God for granted. Uh, there are reports attributed to uh, Ali bin Abi Talib uh, that he comments on this which says it is Allah's kindness and patience with human beings that make human beings take God for granted. That because God allows them to get away with so much in their earthly life, then they think that the, that, that treatment um, will somehow get them off the hook in terms of accountability. So we have these, these reports that uh, of various people, whether the Prophet or 
one or other of the Sahaba commenting about, in response to that key question, what could have possibly made you go astray because you took God for granted so much. There are other reports which would, um, the most famous of them is a report um, about um, Muaz, Muaz bin Jabal, where Muaz phrase Aisha and Apparently, he recites a very long surah in Aisha, or at least that's what the report says. And Aisha prayer takes a very long time. And then the Prophet ﷺ comments to Muaz, "Afatanun anta ya Muaz," meaning, "Do you Do you want?" to test people's face, I mean, or do you seek to um, uh, um, it, it, it's a way of, of uh, idiomatically, it's a way of, of, of the Prophet ﷺ telling Muaz that he shouldn't have prayed for so long because that's too difficult for people. And then in the, in some versions of the, of these reports, in um, um, the, the the Prophet ﷺ says, um, "Aina anta min surat al-duha," or "Sabhisma Rabbi al-Ala," and in some versions he also mentions "Wasmaiz al-Fatarat." So. In other words, the, the Prophet is then telling Muaz, uh, instead of reciting a long surah, and again, we don't know what surah Muaz uh, reportedly recited in surah in Aisha, that made Aisha's prayer so long, he tells him, why didn't you recite one of the shorter surah, like Duha or Sabah Isma Rabbika Al-Ala, or the Sama on Fatarat. Um, if this report is accurate, if if this is an authentic report, there must have been some circumstances that uh, we are not aware of because we have other reports that sometimes the Prophet would recite Surah Al-Kahf in its entirety, or um, one of the longer surah in a, in one of the furud, in one of the um, either Maghrib or Asha. And so, it, you know, when you read a report like this, and and it, it's ahad, I mean, it's a, um, the chain is, is good, but it's not a cumulative report. You you have to understand that it, you, it's not, you can't, you can't derive something of illegal ruling on its basis because there are circumstances missing in a report like this. You know, why, what were the circumstances surrounding this Aisha prayer? 
Was there, you know, when did this Isha prayer take place in terms of, you know, was it before a battle, after a battle, were there wounded people, were there a lot of children? In order to use a report to make any type of positive, to derive any type of positive ruling, uh, circumstances surrounding a report need to be uh, specific and clear. Uh, otherwise, you can't confidently say, well, you know, it is not proper to recite a longer surah in prayer. And, and it, it, rather, the conclusion would be is that circumstantially, you have to be compassionate when leading prayer. That, you know, you have to keep the circumstances in mind so that you don't exhaust people and you don't overburden people. Okay, then we have other reports that talk about the ajr, the, all the hasanat that are earned uh, from reading Surat al-Infutar. And again, this, the, the thing about these reports is that they have the earmark of medieval narratives. So one of these uh, reports, for instance, says that if you, if you read Surah Al-Futar, Allah rewards you hasanat equal to the number of drops in, in rainfall. Now, you have to, you can't take these reports literally and you can't just take them for, and read them in a literal way because we know that in medieval narratives, the way that this genre of saying something is good or bad was often to have this form of exaggeration. Um, to say something is good and so the reward is equal to all the gold in the world, or all the rain in the world, or equal to, and it, in reports like this, what you can derive from them is that the Prophet probably did recommend to people to read Surah Al-Infutar frequently. Um, but the way that people remembered that recommendation and preserved it they, they did it within the forms of narrative that were familiar to them in their day and age. And so, and, and one of the things that strikes you immediately is that the reports, you know, some of them say uh, you know, the reward is equal to the number of raindrops in the world, or some of them say equal to the amount of plants in the heavens, or some of them say um, that, uh, if you read Surah Al-Infutar, um, uh, um, the sins of the day are forgiven. These, again, it's very dangerous to take these reports literally. And many of them, if you take them, they, they, there is clear tension between these forms of reports about the Ashr. Um, as I said, you can 
conclude from them that it is highly recommended to read Surah Al-Infutar, but more important than reading Surah Al-Futar, in my opinion, is to understand Surah Al-Infutar, um, to comprehend it and to internalize it. But that you can't then take any of these reports literally. Okay, so let's start out with the most straightforward um, the most straightforward method, and that's the traditional in interpreting Surah Al-Futar. It is about when the sky is cleft asunder or torn asunder, and when the stars or planets are dispersed, when the seas are burst forth or the seas are burst. And the graves turned inside out. In Futaris Sama, of course, we have the Quran in several places indicating the ripping apart of the heavens or the sky surrounding the earth and and specifically as in the final day or in Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And sometimes as we've talked about before that it, it there's an in, even uh, um, the description that the the sky will become like open doors. Um, there are hadiths that say that the angels will, would be descending from from the from the skies. But what we, for what we can take from the Quranic narrative and what all the traditional Quranic narratives point out to is. the skies, the atmosphere surrounding the earth will be destroyed. And that this accompanies the end of life as we know it on this earth. And one can imagine with our modern knowledge is that what the you know this the atmosphere that surrounds the earth is already so fragile and so um, uh, carefully structured that its undoing will be a very turbulent event and an event of extinction you get a little bit of more discussion about is, is God saying that in fact stars and planets that we see in the heavens um, are they in fact going to be changing their position falling out of the skies or 
or, or being destroyed in some fashion? Or is it the perception, the, our perception of uh, these planets is what is going to change so that it will appear to us that planets that we can see or stars that we can see will no longer be able to see or the way that what the way that we see the 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 uh, uh, of course in our modern language we say the way that we see light reaching us from far away is going to change because we know in fact that it is the the travel of lights from far distances. Interestingly, even in traditional Tefasir, you get this discussion as to whether, in fact, it will be destruction beyond the Earth or simply the changes taking place on Earth. And all we can say is that what we see in the heavens is what will be affected. Um, there, there is a discussion, not very interesting uh, in my view, uh, about why Allah uses kawakib in this context instead of nujum. Kawakib means normally heavenly bodies, while nujum means stars. And you notice in Surah Al-Futar that Allah uses kawakib. Okay. وَإِذَا الْبِحَارُ فُجِّرَتْ So clearly there will be a turbulence in the seas. Most traditional tafsir say that two things will take place. One is the corrupting of fresh water, that there will be changes on Earth. In our modern language, we say gravitational changes so severe that um, the processes that keep fresh water separate from salt water will degrade. And eventually, the disappearance of water, the drying up of water on Earth. Um, interestingly, in some of the traditional tefasir, they say, well, they read this as not the drying up of water, but of enormous, unprecedented floods taking place in the, um, at the end, uh, which is interesting with what, considering what we know about where things are heading with floods and the like. Okay. And then, وَإِذَا الْقُبُورُ بُعْثِرَةً literally graves turned inside out, an indication of that buried bodies will not remain in, this, in, the, in the same state, meaning the cracking of earth. Now, whether people are going to be emerging from their graves uh, or not, as some uh, scholars say that the, the the graves will turn upside down, and you find you know people will be emerging out of their graves, or it, it is a, a more a if you will um, um, uh, 
what is the word I'm looking for? Um, an, an image and nearly a metaphor to refer to something so that graves turned upside, uh, inside out, not necessarily that bodies or physical bodies are emerging out of the graves, but that the graves themselves, like much of the Earth's crust, will be broken. And, and that that image is not the literal emergence of bodies from graves, but rather the resurrection of human beings is what is intended. And you get some, an interesting discussion because, you know, some scholars say, God doesn't say literally that, or explicitly, that you will have something like bodies coming out of graves, but God always just refers to resurrection by pointing our attention that graves will not remain settled. Anyway, the, 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 you know, so that's a minor point because it is the resurrection that is intended, you know, whether, however form, and I don't think we have a frame of reference that can tell us how uh, the resurrection that is intended will be. Okay. Um, now, There is a hadith, I don't think I, I noted it anywhere, but there is a hadith um, attributed to the Prophet that who, where the Prophet refers to Surat At-Takwir and Surah Al-Infutar and says, whoever wants to understand what will transpire in the final day, let them reflect on Surah Al-Takwir and Surah Al-Infutar. And, you know, it's among the, it's not a, a, um, a, it's not a hadith that you can build a theological point on, but it's reported and uh, technically, again, it has a correct isnad. But it is not backed up by other hadiths that, that would give us the ability to say that the, cumulatively that, that anything that we can derive theologically from it. But, I mean, definitely in Surah Al-Takwir and Surah Al-Infutar is this description of the chaos and the disintegration of both the atmosphere and the ground in the year after, or in the final day. Okay, so this is then a clear quick introduction and followed quickly by علمت نفس ما قدمت وأخرت on that day is the day that each soul will see clearly 
what it did forwards and backwards. Now, Qaddamat wa Akharat could be, if it's used idiomatically to, to in, in, throughout Arabic, to refer to everything you've done. Uh, those who try to give it a more literal meaning, you, you know, say something like Qaddamat means what it did in the past, or sorry, what it did in the past, the consequences of its actions. But I think that the, the meaning is clear, that what everything that this um, soul did. The Prophet in the context of this ayah, um, and there are a number of versions, but this is widely reported. And the narration that is widely reported about the Prophet in the context of this ayah is the, the, the narrations about the Sunnah al-Hasana wa Sunnah al-Sayyah. And most of these narrations say something to the effect of مَنْ and so on. So, meaning that whoever does something, whoever follows your example, it's a, whatever action you've done, it acts as a precedent. And whoever follows your example for good until the hereafter, you get a reward from that. But whoever follows your example for bad because of the precedent that you set, and if it's a bad precedent and people imitate that, then you will incur the sin from that until the hereafter as well. That you incur the sin of what you've done and you incur the sin of those who learn from you. Now, of course, this clearly, and this is one of the reasons that makes me suspect that Surah Al-Infatar was an early Meccan revelation. This understanding of the nature of sin and the nature of good deeds, that you are not just something doing something good to just simply in response to a particular event, but you are actually doing something good in order to set a good example and you want to set a good example because in your mind that whatever is going to follow from that good example until the end, you will reap the benefit of that. But at the same time, the concern about setting bad examples uh, 
including uh, stinginess or failure to help uh, other Muslims in need, especially during the persecution in Mecca and then, of course, after the Hijrah. Or even um, when uh, running away in battle or even losing a battle. I mean, it, it had become firmly embedded in the psyche of Muslims so early on that well, one of the big problems with us not doing well and doing our job well is that we might be carrying the consequences of that failure or that misdeed uh, to God knows when. And that's a terrifying idea, if you think of it. It's a terrifying idea. Um, one of the reasons that you learn the art of privacy in Islam in, in, the, um, in, in the West, sexuality is nearly something that's public. Uh, because uh, Grace was mentioning uh, homosexuality. In, your sexuality is no one's business. Is no one's business. Part of the reason it is no one's business is you do not want to be gambling with setting precedents on an issue like sexuality. There are things that should remain between you and God. And people should learn to respect your privacies. And this is also why, you know, the real meaning of modesty is that you, you are not flouting things. But part of our understanding, the very nature of privacy, is thinking about, can I handle the consequences of setting a precedent for better or for worse? So if you are absolutely sure that something is good, you'd say, well, no, I, I, I want to set that precedent. But if you're not sure, and there is a chance that you would be misunderstood because of your own carelessness or because of your own negligence or because of your own failure to express or whatever. Um, that's, that's, you can't just think of your, account, your responsibility, your immediate responsibility, but you have to think of the impact that you are leaving upon others and what message you are communicating. And that is a different approach to morality, by the way. Philosophically, that's a different way of approaching the question of virtue and ethics. And if you work the philosophical implications of that, you, it would lead you to very different results than ones that say, well, you know, your accountability or your responsibility is limited solely by foreseeability.
whatever you can foresee specifically and concretely is maybe what is you're responsible for but beyond that you bear no responsibility that's a very different attitude towards virtue and ethics than one that says you might be accountable for the precedent you set if you set it out of malice out of ignorance out of negligence even if what you were the consequences were not necessarily foreseeable um, of course this we won't we don't you know we can't go through all the expert the, the the full explanation of how that actually is a huge philosophical difference but it is it has a, a, a enormous impact in the way virtue is conceptualized and imagined and articulated. Um, as far as we can tell, very early on in the in the in the Islamic community, from the you know the very early Meccan reports and the reports about what people did early on in Mecca onwards. Um, so if these ahadiths were narrated as so many of the tradition tells us in the context of the Prophet ﷺ commenting on Surah Al-Infitar, then that would mean Surah Al-Infitar would have to be an early Meccan revelation. And we can't take the other reports that say it was after Nazi'at and before Al-Inshaqaq. Um, we can't rely on these reports. Okay. So, after this question to, oh, sorry, after the, the, the human beings will see clearly the, their actions and the consequences of their actions. That then question that I said, we have various traditions about, Ya ayyuhal insan ma gharraka bi rabbika al-kareem. The question that Allah poses, human beings, why have you, and here gharraka in, um, yeah, the study Quran says, what has deluded you with regard your, to your noble Lord? And gharraka deluded you, it, could mean that it uh, um, caused you not to heed the commands of your Lord, not to believe in your Lord, but we have so many reports, and in, especially in, in traditional tafsir that talk about that the ghurur intended here is relying on the idea that there will be that you will escape accountability 
And this, of course, is in just a few ayahs later, um, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا يَوْمُ الدِّينَ ثُمَّ مَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا يَوْمُ الدِّينَ This is, of course, 17 and 18. Remember that Yawmuddin in some Qur'at is Yawmuddin and Deen or Dain means the day where debts are settled. The word Diyun of debts is derived from the same word Dain. And Dain means debt. And so Yawmuddin or Yawmuddin is the day where debts are settled. So when Allah says, Ma gharraka bi rabbika al kareem, now in a lot of traditional tafsir, because it, it says, Ma gharraka bi rabbika al kareem, and karam could mean nobility and generosity. And the answer that many Muslim theologians said is that precisely what deludes human being is Allah's generosity. So, and that, that's why Allah specifically says, Rabbika al-Kareem, your, your generous Lord, is that because in earthly life, Allah gives us so much and postpones our punishment um, is that we start believing that somehow we are not going to be held to account for what we've done. Is that somehow we will get a pass. And of course, in in the in the uh, there is so much written about this that you know it's just so much that the, the tendency for human beings to those who don't believe in God and deny accountability altogether is that's a, a, a different type of delusion. But so many of those who do believe in God, um, it is precisely the more they enjoy an earthly life, the more they are blessed in earthly life, the more God gives them in earthly life, the more it becomes the idea of being punished or being held to account uh, becomes more and more alien to them as they simply presume that, well, God is most forgiving and most kind and so surely God will just, you know, will see that I am a nice human being and I'm not as bad as, you know, so many other people in the world. And so I will be okay. And of course, one, only Allah knows who's worse than who. Uh, you know, you might think that you're in the top 10% of nice people and in fact, you could be 
the bottom 10% because Allah knows what's in your heart and you could be much worse than you think you are. But other than that, uh, even if you have the purest heart in the world, but if your deeds don't support and affirm what is in your heart, is in your heart then in Islam, mere belief unsupported by actions doesn't amount to much. So we, this, this is not a salvational religion where simply acceptance of Jesus absolves you of your sins. It, your actions have to testify and have to be a translation of your beliefs. And, but yet, Subhanallah, I mean, it, it is, it is true. I mean, it, if, when I was younger, I used to think that Muslim theologians exaggerate this point about how many people think that God will just give them a pass at the end. Um, but life experience has actually taught me that that is probably the number one reason that so many people who believe in God, more or less, believe in the hereafter, more or less. Uh, in fact, violate what God has said at, at so many levels. And they always believe that at the end, they'll be okay. Um, it is few people who will bluntly admit that they're probably going to be, that they, well, yeah, I, I know what I've done, I'm going to be punished for, and I'm fine with that. Um, most people say, well, you know, when it comes to it, I'll probably be okay, and God will forgive. Okay. So, what deluded you about your generous Karim, your your noble and generous Lord, الذي خلقك فسواك فعدلك or فعدلك in some Quran, في أي صورة ما شاء ركبك كلا بل تكذبون بالدين وإن عليكم الحافظين كرام الكاتبين. Okay. So, your Lord who has made you and there is a very interesting um, discussion about fa'adalak or fa'adalak who have made you and apportioned you and and we know that the quran says that human beings were made in the best form so that among the things that allah reminds human beings is that allah could have created them in whatever form Allah would have willed. But that Allah created them in a most beautiful, the two arms of the same length, two legs of the same length, two eyes, with 
and, and so on and so forth. Now, there is a very interesting debate, and, and this again all goes under the, the traditional rubric. Traditional meaning that it is within the mainstream of theological debates. Um, is human form beautiful? So is a human form superior to the form of a dog or a sheep or a lion or an, an elephant? Because God says it is, or is it objectively so? And so, now of course this <laughs> debate has to do with the nature of beauty. When, when we talk about, so some, when we talk about what is beautiful, and what is not beautiful. There's several possibilities. It, one possibility is that beauty is simply defined by whatever God says it is. So God says, I've created human beings in a beautiful form because God said it, so that form is beautiful. And that's the beginning and the end. And God says that this form is the most perfect, so it's more, it's better than the forms of animals, etc., etc. And so, if God would have willed, God could have created us in a less beautiful form. Why? Because God would have called it a less beautiful form. Another possibility is the the naturalists who say that no. This, but but they're they're not uh, pure naturalists because say the this form is beautiful because it resembles the perfected form of the Lord, and this is similar to Christian theology, which the the Lord is supposed to have he, he, some type of form like human beings. And God creates human beings in God's image, and that's what defines beauty. Others have said, no, it is the laws of physics, it is the, and the laws of mathematics that makes the definition of beauty necessary. So, bipedal is superior to all fours because of the scientific laws that Allah encoded in creation. And what the, and these types of arguments usually say, you know, haven't you noticed that what defines beauty is often apportionment? So it is the mathematical proportions. When a human being what we call ugly, it is because if you work out the mathematics of this human being, you'll find the mathematics are off. While what is beautiful 
if you work out the mathematics, you find the mathematics express proportionality. Now, you might wonder, well, what is the significance uh, of this? Well, the significance of this debate is when Allah says that الذي خلقك فسواك فعدلك ورعدلك في أي صورة ما شاء ركبك. So some and I think I believe this is from al-Mataridi. So he understands this by saying وأنشأه على صورة على صورة يعرف المحاسن والمساوي ويعرف الحكمة والسفه ويميز بينهما. So for someone like Al-Maturidi and quasi-rationalist or rationalist tafsir, that when Allah says this, Allah doesn't just mean that Allah perfected your physical form, but that Allah gave human beings the ability, natural ability, to distinguish between what is good and what is bad, between what is wise and what is um, uh, idiotic or safah, just stupidity, uh, and what is harmful and what is beneficial. So that it is all a singular package and that beauty is as natural distinguishing beauty and uh, between beauty and its opposite is as natural as distinguishing between what is beneficial and what is harmful what is wise and what is idiotic what is beautiful and what is not beautiful, um, while more literal literalists or the, uh, um, the, those tafasir that are not oriented towards rationalism or quasi-rationalism uh, would read this as, well, all it means is that if God would have said the form of a donkey is superior to a form of a human being, then the donkey would define beauty and a human being would it. It's basically all goes to what God says. While in more sophisticated and layered approaches we find in people like Mitridi and Razi and similar people. And Zamakhshari, of course, in his tafsir. Okay. Um, okay. That Allah alerting human beings that your problem, your problem is that you consistently have a hard time coming to terms 
with the day of accountability or the very logic of accountability that you think just because you didn't pay the bill or God didn't force you to pay the bill in your earthly life that somehow it's now it becomes forgotten and or it's swept under the rug and Allah reminds me the, the very logic of for creation to have meaning which we've encountered before is that there has to be Yawmuddin there has to be accountability now but Allah reminds us that you are never alone because now of course there's a, a th interesting theological discussion does this mean that every human being has a number of angels that accompany this human being everywhere or is it that just human beings are never out of the gaze and recording activity of angels. Um, the, the bottom line is that there's always a record being kept and you are really never alone. So there's a lot of hadith reported in the context of this ayah um, that says something to the effect because there's so many different versions of them that um, you are never alone and so keep that in mind when you change your clothes when you bathe and when you go to the bathroom um, that some of them, uh, because some in, in the desert, uh, some people, and this is still, you know, would um, not cover as they go into the bathroom in the desert or not cover when they bathe, you know, they just... Um, and in a lot of these ahadith, the Prophet adds, so if you don't care about other human beings seeing you, then cover out of respect for the angels that are overlooking or keeping, having oversight over you. Um, so, but there is a, there is a genre of hadith that I, I want to, um, um, which says, Ikrimul kiram al katibin that and i think it's a, it, some of the most touching things i've read is the the ethics that you could be how do i put this that if you are a if you have proper manners you wouldn't want to even if you have a weak will, you wouldn't want to um, 
dishonor the angels that observe you. And that out of sheer um, If, 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 if out of sheer, what is the word of nobility, out of sheer nobility, is that you would keep in mind that even if my will is weak, I do not want to do what would um, dishonor, offend the angels that observe over me. And this is translated in some of the writings into some very beautiful literature that uh, about being well-mannered and learning akhlaq because you're constantly saying, well, you know, if I start raising my voice, for instance, and start yelling and screaming, um, even if people tolerate me, well, that's not becoming towards the angels that Allah have observing me. Or uh, using foul language or, so some of the most, and, and of course Sufis are the ones who take this and fly with it. But in, in the traditional literature, you find a lot of writing about ikram al-kiramik katibin honoring what Allah calls honorable angels that have oversight over you okay. and then the reminder that al-abrar this is uh, 13 Al-Abrar, here it's the Quran translated it as pious, um, which is fine. Abrar are, will be in a state of bliss and that Al-Fujjar, and Al-Fujjar could be kuffar and could, it could be people who don't believe in God or it could be Muslims who are grave sinners or consistent sinners uh, will be in damnation. Okay. The, the only issue that comes up here in traditional tafsir is this is um, number 16 that they will not be absent from from it and this figures into the debate among muslim theologians as to whether hellfire is permanent or not permanent um and as we'll leave this to another context but it is it is a, a, roughly, there are two schools of thought. One that, at least for Muslims, uh, 
that they're in hellfire until they settle their accounts. Um, and and then the the other school of other schools of thought, because it included the Mu'tazila, for instance, that said that you no know, hellfire is a permanent state of damnation. Um, so, and finally, a day where accountability is personal and direct. No soul will avail another. And again, an indication of an early Meccan surah, because we, by now we all know that among the principles that Islam affirms, very strongly from the very beginning is the idea of personal accountability. No parents, no priests, no rulers. The, 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 the idea that your accountability can be mitigated because you are following a superior or a tradition or a mythology or whatever uh, is something that in Islam is rejected outright and that accountability is direct and personal and that each person will have to answer for their decisions as their decisions. Okay. So this is basically the traditional approach which as you see i mean it's it's fairly direct there are certain issues that arise in islamic theology not not exclusively the the locus for these debates is not sort of infatar exclusively but the types of issues that are raised by sort of infatar like the permanence of hellfire or or uh, the non-permanence of hellfire and so on. Um, now, of course, it would not surprise you that the Sufi asked Tafasir understand, stick to their methodology of understanding much of the language metaphorically. But interestingly, Most of the Sufiask Tafasir still understood Surat al-Infutar as speaking about the, the point of the liberation of the soul from its um, uh, from its animalistic attributes or its animalistic qualities. So they, in Lawrence, so, uh, that 
the, when the time comes that the animalistic soul is separated from the humanistic soul, and what they mean by this is the, 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 the soul in its true unadulterated form, when it's able to get rid of its base elements, and for those who have are have thought enlightenment um, and achieved the level of enlightenment, and so وَإِذَا كَوَاكُبُ انْتَصَرَتْ أَيْ الْحَوَاسِ انْتَصَرَتْ بِالْمَوْتِ وَذَهَبَتْ حَوَاسُ الْبَشَرِ and so on so forth مَوْتُ الطَّبِيعَةِ وَمَوْتُ إِرَادِي and so on. So that the point where your senses have become, so the, the, the planets, when God says that the planets are, or stars are dispersed, in a lot of the Sufiyas Tafasir, they read this to mean that the day when the senses are dispersed, so the senses are extinguished. So they're often talking about the day the, the understand this not so much as a description of the final day but a description of death and it is the point where you get rid of your physical senses and as you get rid of your physical um, senses you also get rid of, or your, the true form of your soul emerges, and in that true form of the soul, the barzakh, or what separates realms of reality, or different dimensions, starts dissolving so that you can perceive truth and the closer you are to Allah, the more you, your perception of truth will be uh, enlightened and illuminated. And then Sufis like Ibn Arabi and Qushayri um, say that that day of death can either be voluntary or involuntary. So, it could be the day of your natural death or it could be the day of your rebirth. So, the day that you are able to liberate yourself of your, of your dependence on your natural senses, so much so that you are no longer bound by the physical reality and you can see beyond it because of the, the path that you've walked, uh, the Sufi path that you've walked. And that so it is, it, we are forced into perceiving something beyond our material reality in our natural death but 
for those on the Sufi path, they can, if they achieve illumination, they can see beyond the physical reality before the day of their natural death. Okay, and in the Sufi-esque approach then, when there is a lot written on uh, that illumination that if that if you are on the path of illumination and you actually achieve the voluntary death and rebirth that a karam katibin you they no longer become in the world of ghaib but you actually either perceive them or you feel them as a certain reality. And in that state, you are always aware of the angels that are, have the duty of oversight and keeping a record. And you can never be oblivious. You can, you can never ignore them. You can never be oblivious to them. And you care more about honoring them and being polite, I mean, they actually speak in terms of language of being polite to them, like for instance, uh, always say salam alaikum when you wake up, uh, always say salam alaikum before you go to sleep, so you, they become a very much a part of your reality in, in every sense. Of course, and then the, the day of accountability is you go beyond the perception of it as accountability, but you actually look to, for that day because it's the day of elevation and the day of the removal of the hujub, the, the day of the removal of the veils. And that's the gist of what, we call, what you can describe as the Sufi approaches to Surat al-Infutar is that they, they It's not that, you know, like a Jirani, for instance, he, first he goes through the traditional tafsir, gives you this straightforward, traditional meaning, and then he, after doing so, then he talks about what Surah Al-Fitar means for the person on the Sufi path. Okay. Now, and Allahu Alam, Allah knows best. But what is, what strikes me about Surah Al-Infitar, oh, you know what, this is uh, the last part where I talk about my approach, so let's, let's take, um, a pray, let's pray Maghrib. We're going to pray Maghrib, inshallah, and, and come back. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So first, let me say that the, I accept the, the traditional tafsir as, uh, as precisely on point. Uh, 
and with the taharuf and shira that clearly Allah is describing a an event that is culminated with the expression uh, that if the graves are turned upside down but there as as um, those who've been following me know that there are layers of meaning that could be simultaneously valid at the same time. And I do agree with the Sufi approach that often reads well, references to the Sama as references to the Ruh, to the soul. So typically in Sufi Tafsir, they will say, that if the um, the the sama the the um is on photo how to translate this no literally it would be if the if the um heavens of the soul is split asunder but but sama ruh would means if the the very essence of the, the inner soul of a human being is split asunder. So that, that, and when, if read that way, so when Allah describes these, Events either summer on Fatarat, where either Kawaki Buntotarat, where either Bihar of Ujirat, where either Kubur of Wathera. There are events in human life, these could be physical events taking place around us where we see the atmosphere of the earth being destroyed and the oceans are being ruined, whether they are flooding or whether they're drying, um, and, and so on and so forth. But if these are understood metaphorically, then follow the logic of these, the, the, these expressions. So, Sama, the, the very um, the very sphere of the of where the self dwells, if it is ripped asunder, and Kawakib in Sufi metaphor, Kawakib often stands for what a person knows or the knowledge base or the uh, 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 
the 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 um, epistemology of a human being, what the the package of a per, what a person knows. So if your very essence meets that point where it is ripped asunder, where you feel that you are at a point where what defines, however you define yourself, what defines you as a self, is ripped asunder. And what you believe you know and what you thought you knew is as if in Tatharat being dispersed, but this, but but in a literal way, but in, in Tatharat could also be something that is just um, violently cast away. And Bihar in Sufi metaphors is often the basis of wisdom and basis of what a person, um, it's a deeper knowledge of the self as opposed to the simple, simple constructs uh, from which a person derives superficial meaning. So, and at that point, deeper questions about the essence of things are literally as if exploding before you. So you ask, to put quite simply, your, what you base yourself on has been ripped asunder. What you thought you know has is challenged and seems to be shaken and your these deeper if you will existential questions are now exploding before your eyes literally meaning that they are emerging like volcanic eruptions This is the point. In Sufi literature is often metaphor for a point of rebirth. And I, again, I agree with that metaphoric understanding of things. Is but here, in, in my view, is this is the point where the possibility of rebirth becomes real. But rebirth doesn't always, in Sufi approaches, rebirth is always a, a point of enlightenment. 
in my view, rebirth here doesn't necessarily mean enlightenment, but a chance of enlightenment, an opportunity of enlightenment. But it depends on precisely how you respond to the other two elements. This is the point that a human being confronts their legacy, what they put forward and what they've done in the past, what, what they've done for their future, and what they've done with the life they've lived, their, 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 their past legacy, whatever it is. If you confront it with true ilm, in other words, you confront it honestly and truthfully, the result of that rebirth will be one thing. If you fail to confront it honestly and truthfully, the result will be entirely different. But it all depends on the next issue. مَا غَرَّكَ بِرَبِّكَ الْكَرِيمِ Why, as you confront your past and you confront your, what is ahead of you, what were the reasons, what issues stand between you and embracing your Lord? Because gharak literally means what, it, 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 one of the, the clear literal meanings of it is why have you been missing your Lord? Why have you not been finding your Lord? That's the critical question. Because whether you are going to be among the abrar fi na'im or fujjar fi jahim, whether you're going to be a state of bliss or the opposite of bliss, it all depends on whether your introspection and retrospection about what you've done with your life is going to lead you to understand what things make you take God for granted, what things make you take, project yourself unto God, what things stand between you and feeling God in your heart as your true companion, Sure, you have karam katibin ya'lamuna ma taf'alun. But can you imagine someone that says, I will be a person of proper manners towards my 
the angels that have oversight over me, without that affecting the relationship with the Lord? I mean, a priori, the question is not whether you are aware of the oversight of the angels, but the question is whether you are aware of the oversight of the Lord of the angels. If Allah tells you that you are in the sight of angels, that begs the question again, well, why have you been off the path with your Lord? Now, these points of existential crisis, they are a gift and a challenge. They are a real test in the human, in the life of every human being. All of us, at one point or another, whether because of a calamity, you lose a loved one, or a personal challenge, you become ill, you have an accident, may God forbid, and you get seriously injured. Whatever it is in your life, you will come to that point, always. And where you, that door opens, of your, it's as if your sky has been ripped asunder, your kawakid, your, your, what, you, what you thought you knew has been blown apart. Your bihar, fujirat, you are asking these deeper questions about everything. But it all depends on how you reflect upon your legacy backwards and forwards. And how that reflection on the legacy translates into that basic question, This is Rabb Kareem, noble and generous. Kareem also means kind and tolerant. Well, if your Lord has been tolerant towards you, patient towards you, have not, Allah, have not made you suffer the consequences of your misdeeds, has covered for you. You've committed things that could have been horrific, but your Lord concealed these things and gave you a chance. There are many points in life where you could have gone completely off track and your Lord consistently didn't make the worst possible scenario materialize. Then why do you keep not finding your Lord? This test then can become your liberation or you become your curse.
And it then defines whether you become among the abrar fi na'im or al-fujjar fi jahim. Because it ultimately will define whether you become among the abrar or among fujjar. And ultimately your fate in Yawmuddin, the day where the accounts are settled. And the closing of Surah Al-Infitar alerts you to one of the basic elements of any thorough self, deep self-reflection. Blaming the circumstance, blaming your parents, blaming this influence or these circumstances or this or that is not going to work. As Allah says, It is, the accountability is direct and person, personal. And so part of this process of answering the question, ma kareem, is to in fact be able to confront this individual accountability and I don't know of a single time where anyone has received illumination in the path of the Lord on earth where a person continued to blame circumstance or blame other human beings. In other words, I don't know of a single example where a person continued to be delusional about their personal responsibility for whatever happened, whatever they've done, where they've actually made any progress. A requirement of progress is that you are able to take personal accountability, full responsibility for what you've done in the past and what you've prepared for the future. This is an Allahu Alam, the only Allah knows best, is what my ta'abud on Surah Al-Infutar has always filled my heart about Surah Al-Infutar. That I Yes, it's warning us about the hereafter, but it's also alerting us, alerting us about these fundamental questions about whether we are going to be able to find our path with God on this earth in response to the tests and simultaneously the opportunities, because every test is an opportunity that Allah presents us with. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala
governor's quest. Alhamdulillah. Okay, we're done with Surah Al-Fatar. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. You know, it's uh, even though this surah is so short, um, so profound, and I, I think that your take on it, um, as I mentioned, is extremely meaningful for me because I know that, um, and I, I thought I think I would just share this for you know um, anyone who is interested in this this I guess journey um, from the beginning to the end I mean one of the things that I always felt so blessed to have I mean it's like you know when you marry a sheikh you get all kinds of great benefits right so I mean it's like you get to you know understand Islam in a way that most people don't you get to get exposed to a lot of different um, you know understandings knowledge and all of that but also the personal example and then in my own case I was so fortunate because um, you know certainly I had so much personal growth that had to happen um, and a lot of healing from um, previous like traumatic events and you know when I hear like um, you know this like this approach in the story it's so much of like what um, Sheikh took me through in terms of learning how to really honestly like confront myself um, and my own accountability in things, because especially if you are a victim of trauma or have gone through difficult experiences, it's very easy to be um, used to being in the mindset of a victim. Um, and what that does is it makes it very convenient to sort of deny your own accountability in situations. And, um, and it's, a, it's a wonderful crutch to hold you back from exactly this, from like, moving forward in your life in so many different ways um, in, you know, getting closer to God in the sense that there's always this barrier of something you are not being honest with yourself about. And being honest with yourself is probably one of the most painful exercises and it's difficult to do by yourself. Um, in, in fact, impossible, I think. Um, and we've talked about in the past here, um, you know, it seems that you know, like a very um, close, I guess, example of what Sheikh took me through is oftentimes modeled in like um, some of these like anonymous groups, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, you know, there are these, the 12 steps. Um, and it's, um, you know, something that people either in trauma or outside of trauma actually even participate in, people who have family members who are dealing with addiction or issues like that. But the whole process of really um, confronting yourself and being honest with yourself is very fearful, right? And so fear is often what I think holds people back from, um, from elevating. And if, if, you are, if you have the strength, you have the opportunity to work through like understanding your own, like what you did in the past, what you're, you know, like as it says, um, in the Sura, thinking about your legacy, you know, thinking about the things that are holding you back from reaching out to God. Um, and you can actually confront yourself and own up to those things. It is so liberating um, because you are facing fear um, in the face and just saying, no, you know, I'm going to own this. I did this. I'm capable of this. And um, because I'm aware and being honest and transparent, I can move forward um, beyond the fear. And um, there's so much to be said about it, but um, and I don't know if this is 
you know, not very um, transparent, but, um, you know, it's just from my own experience, um, the more honest and transparent you are with yourself, the more able you are to, um, you know, be honest before God. And obviously it's better to do it now before you reach the final day. So um, anyway. When I read the, the books, the, the, read the book, um, the, the alcoholic anonymous or uh, use what is the expression fearless moral inventory um, fearless moral inventory and I was struck it's in, the guy who wrote this book or the, who, who invented this method must have studied Islam it, it just the, the coincidences or the, the similarities are just uncanny. So uh, I'm completely convinced he must have been exposed to Islamic theology somehow. Well, I heard that it was actually taken by a group called the Oxford Group, which then took it from Islam and oh, kind of Oxford turned group. it towards their own Well, the Oxford purposes. Group was obsessed with Islamic culture. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if that's, if it originated from the Oxford group, they, they were obsessed with everything Islamic, because it was after the Protestant Reformation, and they were, you know, anyway. But the, the idea of fearless moral inventory, and uh, fearless moral inventory is precisely what is needed as an antidote to, uh, Al-Ghurur Billah, that, um, that um, because that very even, that, that expression, the, the Quranic expression, Waraka Billah Al-Ghurur, that the ego deludes a human being to the point that human being cannot find, literally cannot find the Lord, cannot find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, and of course, cannot find means cannot find a relationship, cannot find a meaningful relationship. And it is transparency, the, the only thing that, that will enable a person to, um, to find a meaningful relationship. Um, but um, as long as a human being hides in, in the mythology of circumstance and well, my circumstance, my situation, just things happen, um, there, it will never be. It will just will never be. So my, my point about bringing up the 12 steps is that, you know, I was so fortunate to go through the Islamic, you know, training that the Sheikh put me through um, to help me grow. But obviously this really doesn't exist anywhere. Um, and it's something, you know, that is really inaccessible. And the closest thing um, that, um, that I could find that uh, is similar to what I went through is the 12 steps and in fact um, it seemed like it was even more intense and in, um, in some ways 
Um, so for people who are looking for an actual like structured way of working through that, um, I would highly recommend checking that out because um, in the absence of unfortunately not having these kinds of institutions where, you know, or sheikhs or, you know, um, that whole system um, that we can draw upon, um, the closest thing in, in, in our world now is, is the 12 steps, which I think has also been extremely effective. Um, although, you know, obviously it's not, uh, it's not Islamic per se, but it's, it still takes you through a difficult set of exercises that are extremely valuable. So, um, anyway, on that note, Cheyenne, do you want to start us out? Okay. Oh, and the whole thing is the thicker, right? There's no, okay. Thank you, Sheikh. Um, when you speak about um, blaming circumstances or um, finding ways to <clears throat> say your circumstances is, is exceptional, it uh, reminds me of some of your older lectures where you mentioned halat al istisna and mm -hmm. that being uh, the types of ex ex those being the most dangerous uh, in terms of, well, perhaps essentially leading towards you know, darkness. Um, and you were mentioning it more in the capacity of um, in a marriage um, but it seemed that generally you were ref referencing that these types of exceptional circumstances tend to come up with people that you're closer to it's, mm -hmm. e it's easy to be generally kind and generous to neighbors and people that you come into contact with on a you know, less frequent basis but for those that are closer to you, these, these exceptional circumstances tend to allow you to fall short or to, um, as you've said also before, get tired of doing things the right way. Mm. Um, do you have any kind of just general thoughts about how to be very careful about these exceptional circumstances such that it, it, it would be nice if, if I could see an angel above me at all times because it would be a, a, you know, a, a reminder. But it seems that you don't really get to see that or feel that until you've figured out how to overcome those exceptional circumstances. Yeah, first, the, the, what Shan is uh, referring to is that I think in, in older lectures, uh, I was talking about the um, the fact that human beings have, you know, they, they don't have just one personality, they have multiple personalities. And, uh, and they, they, that these multiple personalities are often situational. Um, that there, there is a personality that they put on, let's say, for example, at work, and there is a personality that they may put on with neighbors, and there is a personality that they put on with a group of friends, and then there is a personality that they might put on um, for passerbys, people that they just come into, into passing engagement with, uh, and the the hardest of them all is the personality that they put on with those closest to them. 
because um, this actually is the one that comes closest to what their true core is. And the reason, quite simply, is that uh, with those that you are familiar with, you tire of putting on, you get tired and you get forgetful, both, of putting on uh, a, an, an act, a, a performance. And the, the, often the tendency is to um, do with people close to you what people often do with God. And that is to take for those who are close to you for granted and to simply assume, well, if I'm not doing things properly or uh, then they should just forgive me. You know, they know who I am. They know what my intentions are. I'm a wonderful human being, so they should just overlook this, you know, overlook whatever you want them to overlook. Uh, that's the, 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 it's this net that Cheyenne was talking about, the, the exceptionalism. Um, and this is a, this is a real problem. The, the person who is truly balanced, uh, who has gone through the journey of introspection, um, their, their inside is like their outside. Um, they, 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 they're, the multiple personalities uh, coalesce around the core that shines through and that shines through so strongly that it sort of casts a light upon all the other situational personalities. Um, so yeah, of course, you might have a certain way of talking and acting at work, but if your core is solid, um, none of these situations at work will be inconsistent with the core. Um, where it is inconsistent with the core is when the core is so weak that it, it basically equals all the other situational personalities. Um, so, you know, you could be pleasant and, and humorous at work and then you go home and you're grouchy and in a bad mood. Um, that's a, 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 that's sort of the typical thing that you see. And subhanAllah that in Surah Al-Invatar, uh, and Shayan sort of alluded to this, that in Surah Al-Futar, it reminds you um, that you have karam and katibin, that you actually, you know, one way of trying to get to the core is to keep in mind that in or out, whether you are at home with close people or or you are in different situations, it, it is the same observers that are recording you. And, um, you know, often, uh, when I was younger, I would play this, 
I, I don't know. I, I would wonder what what the angels thought of me. Um, so I, I would often try to uh, internalize the angels' view of me and see if they would be, you know, thoroughly disappointed, think of me as a hypocrite, um, you know, think, um, the, I don't know if that would work for everyone, but that, that's what I used to do. Um, and of course, as when it, it, it was helpful. I mean, because it, it, it's a way of trying to put a, hold a mirror to yourself. But um, there is no magical way. Um, the, the reason and the whole idea of the fearless moral inventory as the I like this language because it is often requires a, a, a degree of fearlessness and 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 that you just um, um, remember that the Prophet when reminds us that the best of us are the best of us in ethical character and uh, ethical character uh, the, it be you begin judging the ethical character from how you are to those closest to you um, so and that is examining your behavior by saying, um, how am I towards those I'm most likely to take for granted? And examining your behavior from that outwards, um, the, the, the simple fact that you confront yourself, that you take those closest to you for granted is is a step forward because the the same personality traits that makes you take other human beings for granted which is a form of narcissism uh, is what makes you take god for granted uh, that you simply forgive yourself, you indulge yourself. And what is it that Allah reminds us all the time is that forgiveness should come from Allah, not from self-indulgence. It, it is not up to you to say, I forgive myself before coming to terms with whether Allah forgives you or not. And the same with the, the, those who are closest to you. Um, the, the confronting this, the, the narcissistic, narcissistic ego that simply says, well, as long as I can hide it from the public, then it's okay. 
it's you know you have to confront the truth of that you're you're a liar and you're a cheat if if you have if you rely on maintaining your respect by hiding something from the public then there's a deep dishonesty in you you're exact precisely you're a Catholic you're a liar um, and that's as harsh as it is but that's the the beginning of the path to cleansing yourself um, you know all of us are prone to not just dualities but being multiple people at at the same time, we play roles all the time. But unlike in a lot of secular thought, it, the Islamic path is to believe in a true core. And in the, in to, to hold tenaciously to the idea of transparency and truth as a path to liberation. And the most liberating truth of all is self-confrontation, to confront yourself before others confront you, before God confronts you, before the angels confront you. Can I add something too? Go ahead. Because um, I, I think also in the... Um, Sometimes in, in, if you've experienced like trauma um, and the whole idea of like even becoming like a chameleon where you are, you have these situational personalities, but sometimes because you've learned that you have to survive um, by having a certain persona in certain situations and in others, um, it's, it's also easy to have so many situational personalities that you actually don't know who you are and you don't know what your core is. And so that is even more reason. I don't know that it's just that you're a liar because in those situations, I mean, you are a liar, but it may be just because you, you really had to learn through survival to you know, subsume your personality or your core to whoever was your abuser. So you, part, of, you know, part of reclaiming yourself is working through all of those kinds of things. So, um, you know, like for me, one of the most liberating things was to finally feel like I had a right to a core and determine what that is. And then once I figured out what my core was, then it's like, okay, now I can actually own it and be myself instead of be whoever I am dependent on who's around me. And that is ultimately liberating because then you know who you are and you're not scared. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah. Any more questions? Thank you, Sheikh, for presenting this surah. I think um, as you share your knowledge, we are given um, responsibility to be more responsibility to continue to apply the knowledge and be moral beings. Um, my, my question to you is, regarding our responsibility to guide others and and kind of um, 
whether we have that responsibility and how it needs to be applied. Um, I, I think um, recently, you know, I've come across a situation where I've seen a dear friend who's been struck from one calamity to the other, one ill parent to another ill parent, and multiple other uh, kind of sad life events in the in-between. And um, with that, there's been a small admission that the Islam and the, the Muslim that she was is sort of starting to disintegrate, yet is looking for maybe solutions of trying to seek out a sheikh who can maybe read Quran and make some of these um, you know, tragic life events that have been unfolding maybe stop unfolding, but is not necessarily looking for um, ways of rooting herself back in her faith. And so I've, I've been personally very apprehensive to provide any guidance because I think that that requires a lot of thought and education and um, just tact in how you approach another individual. Um, and I'm afraid of perhaps not being able to deliver the message properly. Um, and so I guess my question to you is, do I have a responsibility to feel that I need to intervene because of that admission that maybe she's not, uh, that she's kind of falling away from her faith? Um. You know, uh, I I don't want to deal with the the issue from um, from the point of view of whether you have a duty to intervene. Um, but rather, what is the beautiful thing to do? Uh, because, uh, you know, at what point we have a duty to intervene, it gets to, to complicated, it gets to le into legalities. And, and, and this is not a situation where uh, the legality is, 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 um, gives us the, the satisfying answer. I mean, it's not a question of, uh, what's your amount of your knowledge compared to the complexity of the situation and, and uh, you know, these, these questions ultimately. But if, if you see if a friend that can definitely benefit from guidance and, and that friend is has is responding to calamities by having a crisis effectively i think that the best thing to do is to try to suggest to this friend to talk to people that you trust that could possibly have the islamic knowledge um, that could provide guidance. It, to, to not do anything 
um, not even suggest that they talk to someone um, is, is problematic from a moral perspective. I mean, I don't know whether they're Kirsten or not, because that just depends on so many factors. But from a moral perspective, from the, 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 the point of view of Ihsan, of what's, what's, what's Hassan. Um, but I would not, I mean, of course, I don't know who this friend is, I, I don't know the circumstances of that friend, but it's, it's not, um, the, the point is not lecturing to this friend or jumping in with, you know, advice as to, uh, but whether it is possible to do, to recommend, to urge them to talk to someone. Um, because if they're saying they're reading Quran to prevent the calamities from occurring, that seems to be not the right approach. Um, I mean, this sort of believing that, that if bringing someone to recite Quran, that that's going to fix anything um, uh, just because of the blessings of the Quran, that, that seems then it's no wonder that you would end up with a crisis of faith because you seem to think of, uh, of God in a, in a rather didactic fashion, you know, then put in the, the coin, you get solutions. Um, and so why is it that I'm putting in the coins and I'm not getting solutions? And that could be possibly the problem. And it seems then they, they need, uh, they, they need to want advice. That's one, but, but all you can do is to recommend to them, you know, talk to this person or read this material. Um, I think that would be what I would feel duty bound to do uh, if if I was in your situation. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a really um, kind of straightforward question. If, if I'm honest, it's probably I'm thinking more of transcriptions. I've got the transcription hat on for the test Could you do a comment? on the relationship between infitar and taqwir, because they seem to be so stylistically very, very similar. Mm -hmm. um, but also because we've had the halakas of both of them now, the, the themes covered seem to be very, particularly your own personal approach, very, very similar. I think mm -hmm. taqwir is a bit more detailed. Taqwir talks about the prophet. And, and, um, but I'm also just thinking this now. Because we covered in that taqwir was a very early revelation, I think sixth or seventh. So if there is mm -hmm. an umbilical relationship, would that not further strengthen the argument that Infitar is a very early Meccan surah as well? Yeah, the um, taqwir and the, the question is what is the relationship between surah al-taqwir, which is very early, and surah al-infitar, because both of them um, and even the uh, the um, 
even the hadith of the 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 prophet uh, which um, talks about um, the the blessings of reading Surah Al-Takwir and Surah Al-Infutar, uh, which is interesting because it, it it mentions these two, which uh, are have so many similarities and have that same theme about reflecting upon what you've done, uh, what you've done in the past, and where the trajectory of your actions are going to take you. Um, what, or differently, what the example you've created in life uh, is going to be taken into forward-looking. Um, so, yes, and that is another reason that I believe that Surah Al-Futar is an early Meccan revelation. Um, it, it has a similar message to Surah Al-Taqwir, but Surah Al-Taqwir, as you've pointed out, it has in more detail it addresses the Prophet, the, the, the particular things about the Prophet, or addresses itself to the Prophet at several points. Um, now, but Surah Al-Futar has particularly that what becomes a consistent Quranic theme in later revelations. Al-Ghurur Billah, Karim. And at the most basic level, if you just take the most basic idea of Al-Ghurur Billah, is what makes you think that, what is it in you that makes you think that God is just going to, uh, because you are the wonderful person that you think you are, you know, that, that, that narcissism and egocentrism that makes human beings think, well, it's not possible that God would torture me. I mean, God will torture other people, but not me. Uh, which is at the heart of so many. I mean, if people are honest with themselves, they will confront themselves that that's precisely what occurs to them. Uh, oh, there's so many people worse than I am. So, you know, don't go first, but it will never get to me. And obviously, that's precisely the 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 more that's precisely the moral malady with so much immorality exceptionalism so much immorality starts with exceptionalism with a human being thinking whatever Allah says to others well it's not going to apply to me and I dare say that the vast majority of what people who, believe, who say they believe in God or believe in Islam do wrong uh, is due to this exceptionalism in one form or another. In fact, one of the things that really has struck me in law is I've met um, 
people who've done horrible things, I mean, and not Muslim, but people, but also Muslim. I mean, um, I, I've seen people who've mistreated their, their wives horribly, or you know, they, they come to their, their wife at a, at a, after 40 years of marriage and then they, they dump their wife or something. And they, none of them believe that they're bad human beings. It's exceptionalism, the logic of exceptionalism. They, they're always, somehow, they think that, no, I'm, I'm not a bad human being. Other people who, who've done that, they might themselves have even criticized others who've done the same thing. But it's the logic of exceptionalism that somehow it just doesn't, the, the same doesn't apply to me because there's something special. And, but the other thing is also striking is that uh, in, in legal practice, dealing with just, I rarely met people who've done things like sexual abuse, um, molestations, they, none of them believe that they're bad human beings. They, they, they all function with the logic of exceptionalism. You know, uh, yeah, other, I'm, other people, they, they have, but I just have, there's something, I don't know, whatever they believe is, and it's not logical, it's not, it's, it's an attitude, but if the reason it doesn't come out to the open, it's because it's illogical. Whoever embraces it can't defend it. So it's often just an attitude and, and so on. So at the most basic level is, is to confront human beings with that, with that logic of exceptionalism. But then, beyond that, is to tie the hurur billah the into this whole element of egocentrism and, and narcissistic traits. Be, because we, even those who often um, say that you don't believe in God, um, this is my own observation, and Allah alam, and Allah knows best. But I often find that they're often disappointed in the morality of others, like people that say that they're Muslim and they're disappointed in their morality, but they rarely confront themselves about the ways that their own morality is deficient. And it is that air of exceptionalism and air of narcissism that allows them to then become dismissive of God. There's sort of a, an air of um, so this is the main. I see this as the main when 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 I focus on on infutar. Yes, infutar has some of the same processes of calling, of, of using terminology of nature to refer to 
a process of turmoil and confrontation. But when the thing that, that, that grabs your attention in Surah Al-Infatar is precisely this ayah, and then when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say, says, uh, um, I agree that the tarkib here is not a reference to simply your your physical attributes, but that the, the tarkib is Allah is saying what Allah has said in the Quran repeatedly that you remember that if Allah would have willed um, your your knowledge of whatever uh, intuitive sense of right and wrong you have whatever this this fitrah that allows you to differentiate between what is ugly and what is not ugly, between what is harmful and what is not harmful. That yes, it 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 is Allah has the power to alter your psychology in whatever Allah wills. Now in this both is a criticism but hope in that uh, you know, you, you can't say, you, you, there is no way around having to confront yourself and to confront your responsibility for the way your psychology is. But to also know that if you hold steadfast to you, Allah, then Allah will help to change your psychology. A lot of people who who are who've been raised in an egocentric way, or have never really been been been, you know, there there are a lot of people who just the way they're raised is that right and wrong doesn't have to do with principles; it has to do with the pleasure of the mother or father. You know, it, it's well, why do I do this? Because I said so not because of anything. So a lot of people, they, when they, when, as they're growing, they can't believe that there is something that can modify, change their psychology from its absolute reliance on egocentrism. Because it, whether it's their ego or the ego of their parents, it's the same thing. Um, but once they start developing a relationship with Allah, they, they, it becomes clear to them that their psychology can, in fact, be modified and change. They can go from someone who can easily lose their temper to someone who's very calm. They can go from someone who uh, is insensitive to someone who constantly thinks of the feelings of others. This type of, of, of drastic psychological change is something within 
you have to believe that this is within Allah's ability. And that's how I understand that that Allah can, can, can put the building blocks as Allah wills. And that's another thing in Surah Al-Infatar. Well, I so many questions from the internal group. I know. I didn't imagine Surah Al-Infatar would raise all these questions. Oh, oh. Um, this halakha in surah, I thought about Teta a lot because um, she was somebody who, in the face of her own calamity, the way that she handled her own calamity was very graceful and very patient. And without any complaining. But I, I feel like her level of accountability was not just, of, of taking personal accountability was so much so that when she saw me going through my own calamity, she never came and tried to correct me. She never came and tried to preach to me. She very rarely tried to school anybody or tell them what the correct way is. She was just very patiently and very quietly an example of what the correct way to live is. And if there was anyone who I feel like has, as an example in my life of someone who had the right to go around and to preach to people what the correct thing to do is, I feel like it was her. And so I, I, I'm wondering what are your thoughts on this aspect of personal accountability that it's not just because it's very easy to see the surface level that it's about the things that I do wrong. But let's say that I've now set off on the journey and I found some sort of connection with Allah and I'm feeling tempted to go and start correcting everyone. I, and it comes from a, a, a good place. It's like I found something and I want other people to find it too. And I get very excited about that. But do you think that in that is a level of externalizing accountability? Of now, I'm, I'm, it's, it's almost like a trap. It's like I start paying attention to more how other people should be held accountable or what other people should be doing um, rather than continuing to only look at myself. And I, I guess another way of, of wording this question is do you think that it's necessary for me to find or for anybody to find God before helping others to find God? And at what point does, is that not as relevant anymore? I mean, it, it's... Uh, it's not all, all, all or nothing because, I mean, it, it is... If... There are situations where if you can be of service to someone who doesn't have as much knowledge as you, as much faith as you, um, uh, 
be of service meaning directing them towards or suggesting something to them or uh, it, it's it, it's um, it's something good and something that counts for you. But what Shreve was referring to is, is uh, my mother, um, which is a, a um, he's right. I mean, my mother, especially in in um, actually, I mean, I don't actually remember her ever and. In, uh, even in her younger years, being very preachy, um, she uh, didn't lecture much, um, and she did lead by example. And um, her, but she at the same time, because she was uh, so introspective, and um so so um her her past with his her relationship with Allah was was intimate and personal and extensive and um she it would come out just in 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 her in her regular expressions um, that were not intended as lessons or 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 any. But she had the ability when to comment in very brief ways um, when she would see something wrong in just. Um, just a few words. So with her children, for instance, if she saw something that she didn't approve of, I mean, she would say something as brief as, um, what are you going to tell Allah? And that would be a, no, no long lecture, no, it's just a brief statement. And, um, and, and in fact, that brief statement was often far more powerful and far more biting than any lecture. Um, the, you know, it, it's often, even if you pretend to ignore the few words when you hear them, uh, they stay with you because they, when the, the fewer the words, the less your ego is is able to rush to your defense and construct barriers and so on. But um, uh, so, of course, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, puts it succinctly that truly fortunate is a person who's who's preoccupied with their own faults. Uh, than the faults of others, and and if you focus on your own faults, um, it it will keep you very busy. Because all of us as human beings, the, our own faults can, uh, and it is often our ability to become addicted to talk and to long speeches and. 
words uh, is what camouflages our inability to confront ourselves. Um, the so with, with someone who is goes off avoiding their own faults by turning the scope onto others is is obviously in deep trouble. Uh, it's easy to turn the gaze onto others and to notice what everyone else does that's wrong. Um, that, that, that's, but that's precisely what breeds hypocrisy. But that doesn't mean that, you know, a person can't help or be of assistance to others at certain points, under certain circumstances, unless they perfect their relationship with God. That doesn't follow either. I mean, you can still be of guidance to others or, or help at least others. But the, absolutely the moral imperative is to preoccupy yourself with your own relationship to, with Allah. Um, and the, you, you cannot turn the gaze onto others um, the, the, the gaze must be always directed at the self and let others come to you and force you to gaze upon them I mean that's another thing that uh, about my mother and people like my mother is I don't remember a single time that she has volunteered to go up to someone um, and tell them uh, any of, even when at times I, I, I knew that she did not agree with, um, so you know, she would be invited uh, to uh, dinners and she wouldn't approve of uh, how much food is wasted and how much food is people are gorging themselves on. She wouldn't say anything, but those who knew her knew that she didn't approve and she wouldn't accept a dinner invitation from the same people again. That's the way she worked. Um, she was a muhajraba herself, but I don't ever <coughs> remember her saying anything to to anyone um, about, uh, I know that sometimes she would see someone and disapprove of their immodesty, um, but it would take a lot. I mean, and most of the time, it's only when people would go to her and ask her, what do you think of what I'm wearing? And then she would be honest. I mean, she, she was often brutally honest. She would just simply say, I don't think it's modest. Um, but that's because her, the only time she would really volunteer to say anything is when, um, uh, because it, it, the, the ego had been disciplined. So it's, it's, uh, it's only when 
it's truly out of love for the other person, not out of a desire just to stroke her ego. Um, and most of the time, I don't think she, she, um, yeah, I mean, she, that's, I think that's, a, because I, I know that she would notice things, but she, um, she was known for in, in, in the family for her silence. Um, she valued silence. Uh, but remarkably, those of us who knew her well uh, knew what she, I mean, and actually quite often uh, a look of disapproval without saying any word, anything, was the worst thing that, as her children, the worst thing that, we, that would uh, befall us is if she looks at you disapprovingly without saying anything and without even meaning to, to shame you or anything like that. But th that's, I mean, that's a, just such a level of piety that we all aspire for. Okay, well, we're, we're really running out of time. Um, so, but there are still a few good questions. Maybe I can read all of them and you can try and do a really- Pick one? Brief, pick or, one or do a brief one or Okay. See if you want to hold off on, on until the next one. So, um, okay. This is from Huda. Salaamu Alaikum. The 12-step program was mentioned, and I understand they do a thorough life inventory and then a daily inventory for maintenance, and they have a specific list of things to reflect on each day. But do Sufis offer us with a way, um, with a specific inventory as they do? And what is your suggestion on how to do inventory, or how does one maintain that light after rebirth? That's one. Um, second question, alaikum. if the goal is to combine your inner and outer selves as much as possible, such that there is a true core self, is it better for you to be transparent about the flaws of your core self, or is it better to hide your flaws until you have resolved them? If the former, what is the best way to communicate your flaws? And then the last question is actually, I want to put it out there because it's from um, a convert. Um, in the circumstance of being a, a convert, or he says revert, who has not yet come out about being a Muslim, living with a family that aren't accustomed to Islam, how does one make up for not being able to pray five times a day on time and without being disturbed or so cautious about members of family walking in and asking questions? Wow. Um, okay, so very quickly, Yes, the, there are, uh, the moral inventory um, with your shiuch, with a sheikh, um, normally they will give you instructions on how to go about doing the equivalent of a moral inventory. The difference is a lot of shiuch do not want to hear you admit to them, um, but will give you instructions on uh, how to admit it to yourself. Um, some shiuch will actually have you write the inventory. Um, my method is to actually have you write. Uh, everything. 
and a thorough list um, and a list upon list. And I've learned that from some of my teachers. Uh, so it, it, it depends, it varies very widely by the sheikh you're with and what they believe. Some sheikh just don't want to, to see confessions or what they associate with confessions. Uh, and in, uh, and they, they just want you to confess everything between you and God on your own. Uh, my, my method is not so much that I want to see the confessions, but I believe that there must be the concrete step of pinning them down. So, because otherwise, uh, there is no way I can provide feedback on what a person is doing. Uh, okay. Um, um, the, the second question is interestingly sort of related a bit to the first in that uh, it is the, the point is not to, to, to go confessing your faults to people. Um, if you are going to be confessing your faults to anyone, it's confessing them to yourself before God or and or your sheikh, uh, someone who's actually guiding you through this process. But uh, self-flagellation, where you go around basically telling people, here are my faults, no, the, the, I, I don't recommend that at all. Um, not, n not out of arrogance, but because a lot of times uh, that gives a false sense of humility and sometimes, a lot of times, these sort of let me confess my, my faults to you becomes a, an addiction in, in, it, in itself. And it gives a false sense of righteousness and goodness. Uh, just because you told, uh, for instance, just because you told your, your mother, uh, yes, I admit that. Um, I raise my voice to you all the time. Does it get you off the hook? So what? You've admitted it. It has to change. Um, and so a lot of people, and I've seen that especially with wives and husbands, you know, they'll, they'll use confessionals uh, as a way of basically evading responsibility. Yeah, you know, I... I I, I do admit I take you for granted and I'm sorry for that. And then they continue doing it. Um, so, uh, the third one is hard. Um, um, that, that one, because it, it requires that we talk about uh, your, the specific circumstances of who you're with and what it would mean for these people to see you praying and for you to communicate, this is something I'm doing for myself. I'm on my own journey. Uh, I'm not ready to ask questions. And when I'm ready, 
I will let you know. But, the, uh, and to, to secure that type of privacy, because that type of privacy is important. And for you not to be placed in a situation where when you pray, you are worried about who's watching you and who's seeing you and so on, especially in when when prayer at this very early stage is 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 an is a really an intense emotional experience um having eyes upon you is not always healthy unless you can make sure that you can communicate to people that i don't want you to focus your attention on what i'm doing that, that you know i need i need boundaries and i need space um, I, if, if this is something that is a serious issue, maybe, um, we should, you should talk to me separately because the, uh, this might be a little, a bit of a complicated situation. Okay. Um, so for that third question, I think it came in through YouTube. So, um, if you want to email, um, the professor, you can... Uh, we could email you and then you can me. let me know. Okay, Sharif will put it on the, on the YouTube. So. Yeah. Okay, um, and on that note, thank you everyone um, for being with us for another wonderful session. And we look forward to um, getting together again this coming Saturday, inshallah. Um, so I hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week. And um, alhamdulillah, thank you so much for this incredible learning experience as always. We're, we're so blessed um, and, and, and burdened also. <laughs> so it's, it's all wonderful. Okay, wonderful to see you. Thank you for being with Salaam us. Alaikum. Salaam alaikum.